chapter number 35 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Chapter 35 containing the unsatisfactory result of Oliver's adventure, and a conversation of some importance between Harry Maylie and Rose. When the inmates of the house, attracted by Oliver's cries, pointed to the spot from which they proceeded, they found him pale and agitated, pointing in the direction of the meadows behind the house, and scarcely able to articulate the words, The Jew! The Jew! Mr. Giles was at a loss to comprehend what this outcry meant, but Harry Maylie, whose protections were somewhat quicker, and who had heard Oliver's history from his mother, understood at once. What direction did he take? he asked, lifting up a heavy stick which was standing in the corner. That, replied Oliver, pointing out the course the man had taken. I missed him in an instant. Then they are in the ditch, said Harry. Follow, but keep as near me as you can. So saying, he sprang over the hedge and darted off at his speed, which rendered it matter extremely difficulty for the others to keep near him. Giles followed as well as he could, and Oliver followed too. And in the course of a minute or two, Mr. Rosburn, who had been out walking and just then returned, tumbled over the hedge after them, and picking himself up with more agility than he could have been supposed to possess, struck out into the same course at no contemptible speed shouting all the while most prodigiously to know what was the matter on they all went nor stopped they once to breathe until the leader striking off into an angle of the field indicated by Oliver, began to search narrowly the ditch and hedge joining which afforded time for the remainder of the party to come up and for Oliver to communicate to mr lawsburn the circumstances that had led to so vigorous a pursuit the search was all in vain. There were not even the traces of recent footsteps to be seen. They stood now on the summit of a little hill, commanding the open fields in every direction for three or four miles. There was a village in the hollow on the left, but in order to gain that, after pursuing the track Oliver had pointed out, the men must have made a work of open ground, which was impossible that they could have accomplished in so short a time. A thick wood skirted the meadowland in another direction, but they could not have gained that covert for the same reason. It must have been a dream, Oliver, said Harry Maylie. Oh, no, indeed, sir, replied Oliver, shuddering at the very recollection of the old wretch's countenance. I saw him too plainly for that. I saw them both, as plainly as I see you now. Who was the other? inquired Harry and Mr. Losburn together. The very same man of whom I told you of, who came so suddenly upon me at the inn, said Oliver. We had our eyes fixed full upon each other, and I could swear to him. They talk this way, demanded Harry. Are you sure? As I am that the man went at the window, replied Oliver, pointing down as he spoke to the hedge which divided the cottage garden from the meadow. The, the tall man leaped over just there, the Jew running a few paces to the right, crept through the gap. The two gentlemen watched Oliver's earnest face as he spoke, and looked from him to each other, seeming to feel satisfied of the accuracy of what he said. 
steered in no direction were there any appearances of the trampling of men in hurried flight. The grass was long, but it was trodden down nowhere, save where their own feet had crushed it. The sides and brinks of the dishes were of damp clay, but in no one place could they discern the prints of men's shoes, or the slightest mark which would indicate that any feet had crushed the ground for hours before. This is strange, said Harry. Strange, echoed the doctors. Blathers and Duff themselves could make nothing of it. Notwithstanding the evidentially useless nature of their search, they did not desist until the coming of night rendered it as further prosecution hopeless. And even then they gave it up with reluctance. Giles was dispatched to the different alehouses in the village, furnished with the best description Oliver could give of the appearance and dress for strangers. Of these, the Jew was, at all events, sufficiently remarkable to be remembered, supposing he had been seen drinking or loutering about. The child's return without any intelligence, calculated to dispel or lessen the mystery. On the next day, fresh shirt was made, and choirs recently renewed, but with no great better success. On the day following, Oliver and Mrs. Maylie repaired to the market town, in the hope of seeing or hearing something of the men there. But this effort was quite equally fruitless. After a few days, the entire began to be forgotten, as most affairs are. One wonder, having no fresh food to support it, dies away of itself. Meanwhile, Rose was rapidly recovering. She had left her room, was able to get out, and, mixing once more with Annette and Emily, carried joy into the hearts of all. But although this happy change has a visible effect on a little circle, and although cheerful voices and merry laughter were once more heard in the cottage, there was at times an unwanted restraint upon some of there, even upon Rose herself, which Oliver could not fail to remark. Mrs. Maylie and her son were often closeted together for a long time, and more than once Rose appeared with traces of tears upon her face. After Mr. Lawsburn had fixed a day for his departure to Chertsey, these symptoms increased, and it became evident that something was in progress which affected the peace of the young lady, and of somebody else besides. At length one morning, when Rose was alone in the breakfast parlour, Haley Maylie entered, and with some hesitation begged permission to speak with her for a few moments. A few, a very few, will suffice, Rose said the young man, drawing his chair toward her. What I shall have to say has already presented itself to your mind. The most cherished hopes of my heart are not unknown to you, though from my lips you have not heard them stated. Rose had been very pale from the moment of his entrance, but that might have been the effect of her recent illness. She merely bowed, and bending over some plants that stood near, waited in silence for him to proceed. I... I ought to have left here before, said Terry. You should indeed, replied Rose. Forgive me for saying so, but I wish you had. I was brought here by the most dreadful and agonising of all apprehensions, said the young man. The fear of losing the one dear being on whom my every wish and hope are fixed. You had been dying, trembling between earth and heaven. We know that when the gown and the beautiful and good are visited with sickness, their pure spirits insensibly turn towards their bright home of lasting rest, we know. Heaven help us, that the best and fairest of our kind too often fade in blooming. 
There were tears in the eyes of the gentle girl as these words were spoken, and when one fell upon the flower over which she bent, and lessened rightly in its cup, making it more beautiful, it seemed, as the outpouring of a fresh young heart, flamed kindred naturally with the loveliest things in nature. A creature, continued the young man, passionately, a creature as fair and innocent of guile as one of God's own angels, not entering between life and death. Oh, who could hope? And the distant world to which she was akin, half open to a view, that she would return to the sorrow and calamity of this. Rose, Rose, to know that you were passing away like some soft shadow, which a light from above casts upon the earth. To have no hope that you would be spared to those who linger here, hardly to know reason why they should be, to feel that you belong to that bright spear whither so many of the fairest and the best have winged their early flight, and yet to pray amid all those consolations that you might be restored to those who loved you. These were distractions almost too great to bear, that you were mine by day and night, and with them came such a rushing torrent of fears and apprehensions and selfish regrets, lest you should die, and never know how devotedly I loved you. That's all you must ball down sense and reason in its course. You recovered, day by day, and almost hour by hour. Some drop of health came back, and mingled with the spent and feeble stream of life, which circulated languidly within you, swelling it again to a high and rushing tide. I've watched you change almost from death to life, with eyes that turned blind with their eagerness and deep affection. Do not tell me that you wish I'd lost this, for it has softened my heart to all mankind. I did not mean that, said Rose, weeping. I only wish you had left here, that you might have returned to high and noble purposes again. The pursuit's well worthy of you. There is no pursuit well worthy of me more worthy of the highest nature that exists, than in the struggle to win such a heart as yours, said the young man, taking a hand. Rose, my own dear Rose, for years, for years, I've loved you, hoping to win my way to fame, and then come proudly home and tell you what had been pursued only for you to share, thinking in my daydreams how I would remind you in this that happy moment, the many silent tokens I had given of a boy's attachment, and claim your hand, as in redemption of some old, mute contact with that it had been sealed between us. That time has not arrived, but here, with no fame won, and no young vision realized, I offer you my art so long and your own, and stake my all upon the words with which you greet the offer. Your behaviour has ever been kind and noble, said Rose, mastering the motions by which she was agitated. As you believe that I am not so insensible or ungrateful, so hear my answer. It is that I might endeavour to deserve you. Yes, it is. Rhoda, Rose, it is, replied Rose, that you must endeavour to forget me, not this old, old dearly detached companion. For that would wound me deeply, but as the object of your love, look into the world, think how many hearts you would be proud to gain. Are there? Confide some other passion to me, if you will. I will be the truest, warmest, and most faithful friend you have. 
There was a pause during which Rose, who had covered her face with one hand, gave free vent to her tears. Ere still retained the other. And your reasons, Rose, he said at length in a low voice, your reasons for this decision. You have a right to know them, rejoined at Rose. You can say nothing to alter my resolution. It is a duty I must perform. I owe it, like to others, and to myself. To yourself? Yes, Harry, I owe it to myself that I, a friendless, portionless girl, the plight upon my name, should not give your friends the sense of suspect I had solidly yielded to your first passion, and fastened myself like a clog to all your hopes and projects. I owe it to you and yours to prevent you from opposing in the warmth of your generous nature this great obstacle to your progress in the world. If your inclinations chime with your sense of duty, Mary began. They do not, replied Rose, colouring deeply. You return my love, said Harry. Say but that, dear Rose, say but that, and soften the bitterness of this hard disappointment. If I could have done so, without doing heavy wrong unto him I loved, rejoined Rose, I could have. Have received this decoration very differently, said Harry. Do not conceal that from me, at least, Rose. I could, said Rose. Stay, she added, disengaging her hand. Why should we prolong this painful interview? Most painful to me and yet productive of lasting happiness, notwithstanding, for it will be, is to know that I once held a high place in your regard, which I now occupy, and every triumph you achieve in life will animate with new fortitude and firmness. Farewell, Harry, as we have met today, we meet no more, but in other relations than those in which this conversation has placed us, we may be long and happily entwined, and may have been blessing that the prayers of a true and earnest are, and hold down from the source of all truth and sincerity, cheer and prosper you. Another word, Rose, said Harry. You reason in your own words, from your own lips, let me hear it. The prospect before you, answered Rose firmly, is a brilliant one. All the honours to which great talents and powerful connections can help men in public life are in store for you. But these connections are proud, and I will neither mank with such as may hold in score the mother who gave me life, nor bring disgrace or failure on the son of her who was her will supply that mother's place. In a word, said the young lady, turning away as her temporary firmness forsook her, there is a stain upon my name which the world visits on innocent heads. I will carry it into no blood but my own. The reproach shall rest her own on me. One word more, Rose, dearest Rose, one more! Throwing himself before her, if I had been less, less fortunate, the world would cut it. If some obscure and peaceful life had been my destiny, if I had been poor, sick, helpless, would you have turned from me then? Or has my probable advancement to riches and honour given it this scruple birth? Do not press me to reply, answered Rose. The question does not arise. It never will. It is unfair, almost unkind, to urge it. 
if your answer be what I almost dare to hope it is, retorted Arian, it will shed a gleam of happiness upon my lovely only way, and like the path before me, it is not an idle thing to do so much, by the utterance of a few brief words, one who loves you beyond all else. Oh, Rose, in the name of my art and enduring attachments, in the name of all I have suffered for you, and all you do me to undergo, answer me this one question. Then you feel Lord had been differently cast, rejoined old Rose. If you had been even a little, but not so far, above me, if I could have had a help and comfort to you in any humble scene of peace and retirement, not a blot and drawback in your vicious and distinguished crowds, I should have been spared this trial. I have every reason to be happy, very happy now, but then, Harry, I own I should have been happier. Busy recollections of old hopes, cherished as a girl long ago, crowded into the mind of Rose while making this avowal. But they brought tears with them, as old hopes will when they come back withered, and they relieved her. I cannot help this weakness. It makes my purpose stronger, said Rose, extending her hands. I must leave you now, indeed. I ask one promise, said Harry. Once and only once more, say within a year, but it may be much sooner. I may speak to you again on this subject for the last time. Not to press me to water my right determination, replied Rose with a melancholy smile. It will be useless. No, said Harry. To hear you repeat it, if you will. Finally repeat it. I will lay at your feet whatever of state or fortune I may possess, and if you still adhere to your present resolution, will not seek by word or act to change it. And let it be so, rejoined it Rose. It is but one pang the more, and by that time I may be unable to bear it better. She extended her hand again, but the young man caught her to his bosom, and printing one kiss on her beautiful forehead, hurried from the room. Oliver Twist, Chapter 35, End